When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The strange young man who comes to me. So Afternoon in suburban Dublin. <laughs> That's Two old men fumble inside a box filled with memories. That's it there. All is for us. All is for Deutschland. Everything for Germany. All for Germany. <laughs> These memories are of Michael Kyo, a Carlo man, their father, whose action one night in 1919 changed the face of world history. In the skin and fusiliers, they're all Irishmen. They fought always first, but the Irish up front and fighting against. The Germans. The Germans never done anything to Ireland. Never lifted an arm to them. Only, only built something for them down the iron or crushed it to put, put civilization into it. These are brothers: Kevin Barry Kyo, Roger Casement Kyo. Their other brother, now dead, was called Joseph Plunkett Kyo. Patriot names bestowed by their father, Michael Kyo. Incredibly, Michael fought for and against both opposing armies in World War I. And even more incredibly, the German and the British armies awarded him for gallantry and bravery. As the two men delve in the box, they are helped by Kevin Jr., grandson of Michael, and without whom this story could never be told. It's uh, like for El Dagger, yeah. yeah? Oh, Roger has that. That's insane. Well, yeah. Roger has it. Yeah. The Knight of the Long Knives. Siegfried Dagger, the Dagger of Honour. The small dagger you have. That's the Knight of the Long Knives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Roger still has that, yeah. 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 The Knight of the Long Knives. Yeah. That's a dare. And why would he have been given that? Huh? Why was he given that? From the time he saved Hitler. Got that. It's astonishing. On a damp February afternoon, 2011, in Walkinstown, Dublin, to meet the sons of the man who may have saved Adolf Hitler's life. What else have you got in there? That's the Battle of Tannenberg. Yeah. Against the Russian, where the German army of Hindenburg, Field Marshal Hindenburg defeated the Russians and knocked them back. You have a fine collection of medals here. I have a good collection. He's, he's the two great wars. <coughs> First World War, the Kaiser's Medal, and then he has the Party Medal from the Stahl Helmut. He also has the Victoria Cross. Is there. And he has the Hindenburg Cross as well. The, the, the uh, top, yeah, the Hindenburg yeah, Cross. That one there. The Iron Cross, 1914. So that's the Iron Cross? Yeah, that's the Stahl Helmut. Well, it's called the Hindenburg Cross of Honor. There's a lot of different yeah. medals with that shape and that, but that particular one. It's the Hindenburg? The Hindenburg Cross of Honor is actually its official name, that one. 
Right. Uh, Hindenburg. No, yeah. Hindenburg brought out the flag. No, as well, but that is Hindenburg. Michael Keogh was born in Tullow County, Carlow in 1891. Over his lifetime, he worked and fought in America, Mexico, across mainland Europe, Britain and Ireland, and this during the bloodiest times in modern history. Throughout the last 40 years of his life, he worked on his war journals until his death in 1964. Two nights before he died, at the James Connolly Memorial Hospital in Blanchardstown, his personal diaries disappeared from beneath his pillow. For over 40 years they were lost until Kevin Jr. googled his grandfather's name and there it was. The, the day before he died, we went up to see him and he was in the, in the bed with the, with the posters he'd signed him to, to keep him yeah. calm. And he, he was raving yeah. about his papers. Someone took me papers and the nurse had to come in and calm him and everything else. But two days afterwards, he died then. We never, we never found out where the papers were until my son Kevin found them through the internet mm -hmm. from UCD. Well, I initially, uh, I was just trying to search a bit of history about your father. Yeah. And I didn't know too much. I know it was a little bit of stuff, but I didn't realise it was a full book. Yeah. And I got a, a link to uh, the UCD website. Yeah. And uh, contact that if you wanted to view any, any of the archives, and then you have to make an appointment. So I sent the, uh, the archive people an email, and they yeah. said there was no problem going to view them. But just as the, uh, that particular week, I actually started to build a house myself, and so I got in touch with my dad. I said, look, I think I might have found your father's book. And what I didn't realise was this, that it was taken, this was actually taken from him in Town 40 years yeah. ago. So you're, oh, you went up and... Yeah, confirmed and yeah, up there, UCD. Yeah, and uh, so it yeah. was great in that concert. At least they resurfaced, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, Jenny was trailed over it. Trailed yeah, over. They were listening for forty years or more. What? They were stolen in Stolen. Stolen. Yeah, the priest stole them. Why would he steal them? He was an ex-IRA man. He became a priest, and he was friendly with Daddy, and Daddy trusted him. And he went out there, and, and he was on his deathbed, and. We went missing. Of course, through the funeral and everything, we, when we went looking for him, there were no one knew anything about it. They were gone. What was his motive, though, in stealing them? The, 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 the value of the history, the years to come. Probably stole all the... all Tandy's writings. Wasn't that it? Even though Michael Keogh is 47 years dead, his journals and the memories of those close to him keep him alive. And the peace will last forever. If you could describe Michael Keogh, your father-in-law. My father-in-law. I talked to him very warmly. He was always writing. Now that man could continue writing and talking at the same time. He was just a wizard. He was very, very gentle, but I wouldn't rouse him for things that he was dedicated to. You know what I mean? He was, um, he was a very sincere man about his family, his country especially, and all of that. 
and everyone enjoyed him because he was easy to listen to. Gentle voice, but as I said, you wouldn't rouse him if somebody come along and tried anything, he could really get angry. Loved by everybody. I wouldn't say everybody in, in political life, but by his family. Married to a beautiful German woman. We ran and started off as a student in Carlo. He went to college in Carlo. And then from there he got a scholarship and went to America to his aunt, May and Mary, in New York. And he involved himself in the Irish Republican Brotherhood there, a member of it. He joined the 69th Regiment that fought down in Mexico against Pancho Mio, the bandit. They defeated him, shoved him back into Mexico. And from there, he went on to take up a job on the Panama Canal. The pages of Michael Kyo's journals read like a boy's own adventure story. Distant horizons lured the young man from early on. In reality, the decision to leave was never his. Fighting was in his blood. In a way, my uncle Jack Tynan, a leading Fenian, was to blame. In 1906, he came on a holiday from Newark, New Jersey where he owned a newspaper, and he persuaded my parents to send me to America. So, in March the next year, I sailed in the White Star Liner, Celtic second class, four to a cabin, fare ten pound. I was passing up a fifty-pound county council scholarship to Blackrock College in Dublin, but Captain Jack Tynan, the man who tried to blow up Westminster Bridge in London, sounded more adventurous to a country merchant's son just turned 16. I was 17 and still at school at Fordham College in New York when I joined the Fighting 69th, the 69th Irish Volunteer Regiment of the National Guard. My battalion adjutant was the future father of the 1916 Easter Rebellion, Captain Tom Clark. In this company, I was already immersed in the Irish Republican movement in America. I had been inducted into Clan Nagail by Clark and O'Donovan Rassa, the old Fenian. I went once a week for training at the 69th Armoury in Manhattan. The rest of my time was spent in studying for an engineering degree, which I took out at Columbia University in 1909. A year later, I was working in the New York Municipal Engineering Department when President William Taft issued a call for volunteers to patrol the frontiers of Texas and New Mexico against the Mexicans. As is the case with much of Michael Kyo's life, coincidence and fate linked him back to his hero granduncle, Miles Kyo, a man who was massacred along with General Custer and all of the 7th Cavalry by sitting bull Sioux Indians at the Battle of the Little Big Horn. Only two living things escaped the Custer massacre by sitting bull Sioux Indians at Little Big Horn in June 1876, and both were Irish. When the 10,000 Sioux and Cheyenne Braves charged in upon General Custer and his five companies of the 7th U.S. Cavalry, a half-breed scout named Jack Curley, his father was Irish, his mother a Pawnee squaw, 
tucked an Indian blanket around him, swung up on a loose army horse, and rode safely through the Indians. The horse was Comanche, and he belonged to my granduncle, Colonel Miles Keogh, Gettysburg veteran, who died that day at Little Bighorn, standing back to back with Yellow Hair Custer. Fort Keogh in Montana is today called after him. I rode Comanche 34 years after the massacre at Fort Riley, Kansas, when I was doing a mounted infantry course at the American Army. The old horse was then 38 and living at the fort in honorary retirement. I was taking up again the fighting tradition of my family. For here I was, an eager Irish emigrant of 21, tossing aside my engineer's job in New York to go battling with Mexican guerrillas in Texas and New Mexico. Over time, Michael Keogh became deeply involved with the Fenian movement in America. By 1914, a war in Europe involving Britain was simmering. Michael Keogh saw England's difficulties as his and Ireland's opportunity. He set sail for home. In the autumn of that fateful and historic year, 1914, Accompanied by another Irishman, I sailed from New York to Ireland. Our purpose was to enlist in Irish regiments of the British Army, in the same spirit and with the same aim as inspired the earlier soldier Fenians. That aim needs no elaboration. I enlisted in the 18th Foot, the Royal Regiment of Ireland, a title dating from the inglorious days of King James II and the Boyne. For the Irish uprising to succeed, the rebels would need weapons. Michael's plan was to enlist and defect with his rifle when the call to arms was sounded. That was the plan, but there are no certainties in a time of war. I have already referred to our embarkation for Boulogne from Southampton immediately after the declaration of war. On Saturday evening, 22nd of August, we met the foremost German Ulan patrols near Mons. An Irish trooper of the 4th Irish Dragoon Guards was the first British soldier to fall victim to a well-aimed German bullet. By noon on the memorable Sunday of 23rd of August, 1914, a critical situation had developed. Fronting us were the Germans, Germans facing us, Germans to the right of us, Germans on our left flank, Germans concealed in masses in the surrounding groves and wooded landscape, their artillery belching death at short range from the effective camouflage afforded by the timber-knitted ground. Scarcely had half an hour elapsed before word was passed down the extended firing line. Every man for himself, save yourselves as you can. We were in a veritable death trap, and officers and men simply acted on their own instincts of defence. I stuck it out until late in the evening when... Completely at bay, 
outflanked front and rear. It was a case of Hendehoch, which meant put them up and quick at that. In a word, we made the best of a bad job, submitting philosophically to the fortunes of war. Four days later, I found myself, along with some 250 other soldiers, Irish, English and Scottish, in Senelager Camp, Westphalia, Germany. En route, I paid a visit on Shanks Mare to Halle, Waterloo, Louvain and Liège in Belgium. I was now a passive spectator in the historic cockpit of Europe. Vor der Kaserne, vor dem großen Tor, steht eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. What started out as a plan to obtain a British weapon that might be used in the fight for Irish freedom backfired. Michael was now fighting for his sworn enemy England on the battlefields of Belgium. As a prisoner of war, it seemed his dream was over until his German captors allowed the prisoners to set up an Irish brigade to fight the British. There was a, a man called Sir Roger Casement who was... Uh, a British diplomat who had been knighted for doing various good works, and he decided for reasons that are a bit obscure uh, that he would take it upon himself to go to Germany uh, and to do two things in Germany. One was to get uh, arms delivered to Ireland, and the second one was to raise a what he called a brigade of men from Irish prisoners of war to take back to Ireland and fight for Irish independence. He smuggled himself into Germany with uh, a fair amount of difficulty uh, and within a few weeks he had signed an agreement with the Germans. Uh, it wasn't just any old agreement, it was a very uh, detailed agreement that was eventually signed by Zimmermann, the Foreign Secretary, on behalf of the German government it gave him carte blanche to uh, recruit among the Irish prisoners of war, which the Germans agreed to uh, to corral in, in one central place. And uh, he also negotiated on arms and ammunition. David Grant is a war historian. His speciality is Casement's Irish Brigade. He has read with interest Michael Keogh's recently discovered journals. When I started looking at this, I had really no idea how Roger Casement set about organising. He got uh, round about 3,000 Irish prisoners of war in one camp, centralled in one camp, a place called Limburg. And um, he started by making soundings and he stood up and make a, made a speech in January 1915 uh, to the assembled camp. From that speech, only two men came forward. Uh, one of them was Michael Keogh. Because those two men were the first to join up, they became the senior NCOs. They started their recruiting in earnest when a man called Joseph Plunkett arrived in Germany. Uh, Plunkett had been sent by uh, IRB in Dublin. Uh, Plunkett, in the space of about two weeks, got another 50 men. They became the Irish Brigade. 
So Michael Keogh lasted throughout the duration of the war. I presume, was the brigade disbanded when the war was over? Well, what happened to him was once uh, Casement disappeared back to Ireland in, in the submarine, uh, the thing effectively folded. Um, within two or three weeks of Casement disappearing, the Irish brigade, as it was, the 56 men, were transported off to another prisoner of war camp uh, in what is now Poland. It was then part of Germany in Danzig. And they spent the majority of their time there. Um, Michael Keogh was taken a prisoner in uh, August 1914. Uh, he was at Limburg uh, until the following summer. Uh, they then transferred them to a camp called Zossen, where they had uh, machine gun training, which was really the only time the lads operated guns in Germany for a short period of a couple of months. And by summer of 1916, they're transported off to Limburg and they spend the next two and a half years basically working as labourers in uh, farms in Poland. Uh, Michael Keogh um, really walked away from the Irish Brigade at that time. I, I'm not using that in a, um, a critical sense uh, because they all walked away from it. The Irish Brigade ceased to exist when they went to Danzig. Uh, they had a barracks there, but um, the Germans pushed them all out to work, uh, including the NCOs, and uh, at that point, the Irish Brigade was over. Michael Keogh was to discover that there were dangers other than bombs and bullets in wartime. In 1918, he contracted war flu and trench fever. During his treatment in Munich, a young Bavarian nurse fell for his brown Irish eyes. They were married a short time later just weeks before Michael deserted his regiment and joined the 16th Bavarian Infantry Regiment on the Western Front. This was Adolf Hitler's unit. It was here that he claims to have had his first encounter with the future Führer. Oh, can I show you this? This is beautiful. This is the marriage of Kevin's father and mother, one of the, uh, the dress where he's in uniform. So this is Anna-Marie Seifert. My late mother-in-law, God rest her soul, and this is father, grandfather, you handsome man. She wore flattish shoes because she was a little taller than granddad. <laughs> and uh, madly in love all their lives. Um, now, her feet, you see, she wore little, little, little pumps, we called them, because they, they, they cut back how tall she was. And you see the veil? Isn't that exquisite? Three-quarter length. And here she is. Those are all fresh flowers. And uh, they were an extremely ha happy couple. Although the mother had to devote best part of her life to father because um, the, the side of him that was constantly writing, 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 all about his country, what he knew, his history, and all the rest of it. But she, as she said, got used to it, Mary, and it, uh, you know, 40 years, she said, I had to give the vote to father in order to let him carry on with what he had to say about his life and his country. Could you describe um, maybe the uniform? 
Oh yes, yeah, there's the buttons and, and the belt, there you go. Well, the, the uniform is, uh, from what the painting now, it's an old picture. Mm. It, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a green, isn't it? Would it be green? It, it's kind of a greenish, Kevin. It should be more grey, or maybe, but it has a hue of yeah, green but, on it. Yeah, but that's the, it, it is the, it is the Bavarian, the, the 16th Bavarian Regent, which yeah. he later joined after the Irish Brigade broke up. Mm -hmm. And you can tell by the, the helmet then, is the old... Uh, yes, there's the helmet. The old helmet with the spike on it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so that, that's Hitler's regiment then? That's the same regiment, yeah. Yeah. The 16th Bavarian. I took part in the big German offensive on the Western Front from May to August 1918 with the 16th Bavarian Infantry Regiment. Some of that time I had spent with gallant Bavarian comrades in the frontline trenches when modern warfare had become hell on earth, with practically 36 nations of the white, black, red and yellow races taking part. I was not satisfied till the opportunity given me was fulfilled. At times, however, I had to shut off the feed to my machine gun, owing to the sickening horror of the process, shooting off at the rate of half a thousand a minute, and mowing down a retreating enemy like locusts before a hurricane on the African veldt. History is written by the victors. Yes. How then do you describe Michael Keogh's journals? Michael Keogh wasn't a victor. Michael Keogh was a man that wrote a journal. The difficulty with writing any journal is that it's not that it's the heroes that, writing, that, that are writing it. Um, it's that we are all heroes of our own lives. Yeah. So because Michael Keogh was the hero of his life, he's the hero of his journal. I'm trying to not write the history of the Irish Brigade, but put the Irish Brigade into perspective. So I find it difficult to take, or impossible to take, or undesirable to take Michael Keogh's journal as being the definitive source. My wife uh, sometimes worries about the stories I tell and as she says, an Irishman doesn't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And to me, I think that that's the problem with Michael Keogh's diaries, that uh, he has sometimes let the good story come through rather than the truth. He claims in the memoirs to have seen Adolf Hitler three times. Once on a stretcher in 1918, uh, once in barracks in Munich in 1919, and sometime later in the 30s at uh, one of the, the full Hitler uh, rallies. Undoubtedly saw Hitler at the rally, and he doesn't claim to have done any more than stood in the back and listened to him. Chapter 13. A Chance Meeting. How I had to put Lance Corporal Adolf Hitler under military arrest and saved his life. Two first aid men were carrying Adolf Hitler down the line on a stretcher. He had been blinded temporarily by a wound on the side of the head and was badly wounded in the groin. The date was the 28th of September 1918. I was standing outside a field dressing post near Ligny on the French border 
and it was the first time I took any notice of Lance Corporal Hitler. Somebody nearby said sympathetically, Kaput. It was said afterwards that it was that stomach wound near Ligny that kept him from marriage until the last moments of his career, for this wound, it seemed, made it impossible for him to become a father. Hitler, like myself, was then serving in the Bavarian 16th Infantry Regiment. He was in the 2nd Battalion. I commanded the machine gun company in the 1st, the List Battalion, with the rank of Field Lieutenant. We were part of the so-called Spring Offensive, which was to be the last great offensive on the Western Front, the final push ordered by the Kaiser to win the war. It almost did. We advanced 100 miles in some places and brought Paris within range of Big Bertha. Then, in June, the Americans came in and the Allies launched their final smash. It was strange that I, an Irishman and former lieutenant of the American Fighting 69th Regiment, had come to be fighting at the head of a machine-gun company in the beaten German army. I had not come to Germany in 1914 to die for the Kaiser and his jackboot regime, but it was true that I was now a Bavarian citizen for my own soldierly protection, and I had a German wife. I wore a German uniform, and I spoke German like a native Bavarian. In 1918, when the war was lost, Michael Kyo joined the regular German army in the Steel Helmet Corps. He was now a family man with roots in Germany. The following year, he had his second encounter with Adolf Hitler. I was the officer of the day in the Turkenstrasse barracks when I got an urgent call about eight o'clock in the evening. A riot had broken out over two political agents in the gymnasium. These political officers, as they were called, were allowed to visit each barracks and make speeches or approach the men for votes and support. They came from all the new parties that had sprung up as a result of the new freedom existing in Germany. And they were very active in Munich just then because municipal elections were coming up in a few weeks. But many soldiers awaiting demobilization, tired of war and already disillusioned with peace, had little time for politicians. I ordered out a sergeant and six men and, with fixed bayonets, led them off at the double. There were about 200 men in the gymnasium, among them some tough Tyrolean troops. Two political agents, who had been lecturing from a tabletop, had been dragged to the floor and were being beaten up. Some of the mob were trying to save them. Bayonets, each man carried one at his belt, were beginning to flash. The two on the floor were in danger of being kicked to death. I ordered the guard to fire one round over the heads of the rioters, 
It stopped the commotion. We hauled out the two politicians. Both were cut, bleeding and in need of a doctor. The crowd around muttered and growled, boiling for blood. There was only one thing to do. One of the two men, a pale character with a moustache, looked the more conscious despite his beating. I told him, I'm taking you two into custody. I'm putting you under arrest for your own safety. He nodded agreement. We carried them into the guard room and called a doctor. While waiting for him, I questioned him. The fellow with the moustache gave his name promptly. Adolf Hitler. It was the Lance Corporal of Ligny. I would not have recognised him. He had been five months in hospital in Passavolk, Pomerania. He was thin and emaciated from his wounds. He told me he was still on sick leave and was still getting his Lance Corporal's pay and rations. Then he began to talk about his new party. The other with him was Zimmer, later a close friend of his. They had come to the barracks as political agents for the new National Socialist German Workers' Party, NSDAP, which Hitler and six others had founded. It was plain from the start that it was not a party which appealed to decent men like the veterans at the Turkenstrasse barracks. They saw their country falling apart and their people starving a country where housewives raided farms and dug up the potatoes with their bare hands, a country where a one-legged veteran would hack another two inches off the stump of his severed leg to win an increase in his disability pension. It was a country of blank despair, and the veterans at the Turkenstrasse had no time for Hitler and the other political prophets. But Adolf Hitler that night was not cowed, he would have carried on his political arguments in the guard room if I had bothered to listen. The man I left behind me in the guard room that night was brimful of his own convictions. And yet, if one of those kicks had landed on his old stomach wound. He was transferred next day to hospital in Nuremberg after the doctor had stitched up his cuts. The next time I saw him, he was no longer in need of a guard room for his safety. The Jugend ist uns verschrieben und verfallen mit Leibniz. The historian David Grant has made a close study of Michael Kyo's journals, particularly focusing on the Hitler encounters because of their political importance and the involvement of an Irishman in the fate of Europe. If you take 1919, where um, the war had ended, Keogh had gone into Munich with the Freikorps. They'd fought their way in, uh, and his dates on that are, are spot on. Um, he arrived with his group of men at a barracks in Munich called the Turkenstrasse barracks, and undoubtedly that was where that group of men were quartered that week in May in 1919. You can also look at Hitler's life and you can see Hitler, who was in the same regiment, uh, was in those barracks in that week at that time. What I can't tell you is whether or not 
Michael Kyo was on the guard that day and did save Hitler's life because Hitler doesn't write in his book as uh, indeed you wouldn't expect him to do um, trying to recruit uh, German soldiers they didn't like what I was saying uh, so they started kicking me and my life was saved by this Irishman with, a, with, with the guard uh, whenever those early fascists got into those situations they tended just to sweep them under the, the counter but what I can tell you is that yes Michael Keogh was there Hitler was there uh, I do think though in this case the balance of probability is that this event did happen they told of the fine young men that when the war is over the long lost journals of Michael Keogh were finally published by his family last year for two old men, their father's story has been made public and at last set free. If he was here today and you had a chance to say one thing to him, what would you say to him? Um, what would I say? Well, I always knew that one day his name would go down in history and I prayed for that. And I think it's going to happen. And um, he was a good man, fierce, proud and proud of his heritage, proud of his country, and would give his life for it. And I know that for a fact because he told me so. Well, I'd be very proud to, to present it with a book, like, because we tried all his life to get it published on it. So I think he wasn't here when the book was published. But uh, his wishes, I got his wish through. I got the book published. and. Uh, I know, I know he'd be happy now where he's resting, rest in peace, and I know he'd be delighted now that he's, that at least it'll be out in the open now. <laughs> and, uh, so that's all I could say, that he'd be rest in peace. At heart, Michael Kyo was a soldier, and the least he deserves is a place in the history of our nation. On the 8th of September 1936, I left Germany for good. The Nazi regime was transforming the country. It was a case of back to Ireland for me. It was a quiet return, unlike a journey from Germany 16 years before when I reached Dublin wearing a moustache and carrying a fake American passport made out to George King. I used this name because it was King George backwards. At that time, I met General Michael Collins at the Spa Hotel in Lucan and laid plans for gun running from Germany. And I went to war on a bicycle to the Battle of Mount Leinster. This was in 1920. Machine guns, disguises, knives, murder, and bicycles. It's been a mixed-up life. But my last war is done. I have outlived almost all the men I fought. I have no enemies. I am at peace. When you need 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.